Daniel chapter 8. Let's open with a word of prayer. We're going to pray for the offering. We're going to dig into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We ask now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. And Lord, I know this is not going to be a simple word for people to hear, but we know that your word is powerful and it's right on time and it's so in line with what's going on in the world today. We also want to thank you, Lord, for the offering uh, finances that are given to further your kingdom and to allow us to minister to people, both the truth of your word, but also to minister to people who are hurting and are in need. And Lord, take and use the resources that are given for your kingdom and for your glory. When we ask these things in your holy and your precious name, we pray. All God's people said. So if you came here today and it's your first time here at Calvary Chapel, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, right through the whole counsel of God. We started in Matthew on Sunday mornings. We got all the way through Revelation. We're going to start Matthew again. But after Revelation, my heart was to teach through Daniel because Daniel is the most prophetic Old Testament book in the Bible. Only more prophecy, only book with more prophecy would be the book of Revelation, a lot in Ezekiel and other places as well. And so the first six chapters of Daniel really were the history of the life of Daniel and his three friends and how they interacted and how they purposed in their heart to serve the Lord and So we saw Daniel's life from a teenager into his 80s in the lion's den. He was faithful as a teenager, and God used him in his 80s. Now, when we get to chapter 7 through 12, it's more foretelling of prophecy of things that were in Daniel's future. Now, some of these things, as we'll see this morning, that were in Daniel's future have already been fulfilled. And the reason I love it is it was prophetic when Daniel got the dream or Daniel wrote it down. But guess what? Every single thing that was prophesied to Daniel took place exactly the way God said it would be. And one of the things we need to be mindful of as believers, when people question the Word of God, there are so many reasons why we can trust the Word of God. First of all, it's got more original manuscripts than any book ever written, and it's not even close. People quote people like Plato and people like you know those guys, and and they have like six original manuscripts. There's over 20,000 manuscripts for the Bible. So the Bible is true. We also, can, we also know the Bible is true archaeologically. Every time they shovel up dirt in Israel, the Bible's proven to be true yet again. Nations they said didn't exist. Cities they said didn't exist. People they said didn't exist. The Word of God's always true. Science has to catch up. Can I get an amen to that? Prophetically, the Word of God is true. And so we've seen prophecies, hundreds of prophecies about the coming Messiah, hundreds of Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. We'll see some more of that in this morning's text. So last week in chapter 7, we saw Daniel's dream of the four beasts representing four kingdoms. We're going to see those again today in more detail. It was Babylon, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and then the Roman Empire. We talked about last week the little horn that comes out of the Roman Empire, which is in the future, and that's the Antichrist. So we're going to be introduced to a guy this morning by the name of Antichus Epiphanes. And he's kind of a type or a picture of the Antichrist who came along about 170 years before Jesus was born. And so we're going to see that he looks so much like the Antichrist, but so often in the Bible, God will give us foreshadowings of things to come. Like the Bible talked about the fact that Elijah would would come before Jesus. And most people believe that's clearly a picture of John the Baptist, who was like an Elijah. But Elijah is also going to come in the future. I believe he'll be one of the two witnesses during the last days. And so we're going to move forward now from looking at the 
historical to continue to look at the prophetic. If you have your outline, grab it and hold on to your hat because I'm going to be about as blunt and I'm not all shock you, I'm going to be direct. But um, <laughs> we're going to be a direct today and some of you might get offended. And if you get offended, you probably need to be offended because the word of God is the standard. Amen. And I'm going to say some things that are so clear to me that I don't think that it's even up for debate. You know, there's types, even though the Antichrist hasn't come, and I do not believe that we as believers will see the Antichrist because we will be raptured first. There is the spirit of the Antichrist that the Bible talks about that's been taking place, and we'll talk about some of that as well. So grab your outline. I tell the message, prophecy is preparation for what's coming. Why do we study prophecy? Well, first of all, it just makes, the, it makes us understand that the Bible's true. And prophecy is important, but a lot of people study prophecy so they can debate prophecy with other people. And that's not why prophecy is in the Bible. You know why prophecy is in the Bible? It's to prepare us to be ready, and it's to give a sense of urgency in our hearts to tell other people about the Lord. Amen? Prophecy exhorts us. Each time we see prophecy being fulfilled again and again and again, it's letting us know that we're getting closer to the return of our Savior. And in preparation for that, we should be burdened. Every believer this side of heaven should be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell. Amen? And we should have a passion for them and a desire to see them saved. And prophecy should stir us up. So here are the five points. Prophecy is preparation for what's coming. Greatness in the eyes of the world will be meaningless on Judgment Day. All those things that the world thinks are so important, position, letters after their name, how many followers they have, how much power they have, how much stuff they own, it's all chaff, it's all wood, hay, and stubble, it's all going to burn, and none of it will matter in eternity. Amen? There's some blunt coming. It's coming. I'm just telling you, all right? I've been stirred up by this chapter all week. So the you know, as the worldly power positions and accomplishment we strive so hard to achieve will be emptiness, empty and meaningless in light of eternity. You know, a lot of times, and it doesn't have to be this way, you can be very accomplished and remain humble. But often when people are accomplished, they start patting themselves on the back. They promote themselves. They love to correct people when they don't give them the right title because they've been so educated or whatever it may be. And they lose humility but here's the reality. You know when everyone's going to be humble? When we stand before Almighty God. Amen? And there's that mentality that somehow we think we're more special. No, God's given us gifts. Let's use them for His glory. Let's be faithful. Let's be the best workers in the building, the best students at our schools. But that being said, don't put your value on who you, what you accomplish in this life. Because your value is determined by what someone's willing to pay. And what Jesus did is he suffered and died that you might have eternal life. And that's what makes you valuable, not the stuff you accomplish in this life. Amen? Point number two, there's always been a hatred for God's people. And guess what? It's only getting worse. And when I say God's people, I mean both born-again believers and Israel. Amen? Now, Israel, the Jews as a whole... Many of them are, have re rejected Jesus, and they have blinders over their eyes, and they're waiting for the coming Messiah. But gosh, guess what? They're still God's chosen people, because God said so. Amen? Now, here's what I do believe will happen, and I believe largely during the Great Tribulation, is I believe what will happen is that when, when we're raptured, and when they see the abomination of desolation, we're going to see millions upon millions, I believe, Jews get saved. 
Now understand this, though. The early Christian church was almost all Jews. Amen? This is a Jewish book written by Jewish people about a Jewish Savior. Amen? And so anti-Semitism is demonic. Amen? If you have a problem with Israel, you got a problem with God because God says, I will bless those who bless Israel, and I will curse those who curse Israel. I was at the doctor. I've been at the doctor nonstop for the last five weeks, and I, I, I ran into a man. He had a yarmulke on. I walked over and started talking to him about Israel. And one of the things I hear from Jews, and I believe God will use this, and we need to be faithful to it, because the Bible talks about we will provoke them to jealousy when they see our love for God. But here's what I hear from Jewish people when they find I'm a Christian pastor. They'll say, you know what? The only friends we have that we know if we went to war that would stand next to us in the midst of it and fight with us to the death are the evangelical Christians. And guys, that ought to be our reputation, amen? We're going to stand with God's people even in a time when many of them have not opened their eyes yet because here's the good news, it's not too late. And by standing with them, we want to draw them back into the true Messiah, amen? We want to let them see the love of God. And we're going to see that in this morning's text. There's always been hatred for God's people. We're going to see Antichus, Epiphanes, and not just him. Why is it that they always want to kill the Jews? Why is it the Christians get fed to lions? Why is that? We don't see Muslims getting fed to lions. We don't see Buddhists getting... Who do they go after? You know why they go after the Jews and the Christians? Because we are God's chosen people. Amen? And there's a hatred for the things that God loves. We're going to see the desecration of the temple. We're going to see Antichrist's epiphany is going to kill about 100,000 Jews or more. Number three, as bad things have been, even greater persecution is coming. I didn't come for church for that. Guess what? The Bible tells us in the last days, men will call good evil and evil good. The Bible tells us that lawlessness will abound. We've got people marching in the street, crying out for the removal of Israel in our country right now. Amen? And you know what? I'm going to order as many pro-Israel shirts as I can get and wear them every day and hope I get to talk to somebody about Jesus. Can I get amen to that? Because the reality is we're living in a time from the river to the sea. That means wiping out all the Jews. Why is it this nation, the size of New Jersey, is the entire focal point of our entire world? You know why? Because God said it would be. And because that is where the temple is, and that's where sacrifices took place, and this is where God's plan is. As bad as things have been, they're only going to get worse. Again, and there's more persecution coming for God's people. You know, the time of Babylon in the text was almost over, but Antichrist Epiphanes was coming, and the worldwide hatred for Israel today will grow worse and worse and reach its climax during the tribulation. Number four, the Antichrist will oppose God and his people in every way. I am so surprised, I shouldn't be, how totally polar things are today. You're either on this side or this side, and almost nobody's in the middle. Amen? You either think they should kill babies up until the moment they're born, or you recognize they're created by God and it's murder. Those are two opposite extremes and very few people stand in the middle. Amen? You either believe that there are only two genders, a man and a woman, or you think there's 570, you keep adding to the list, and we're all can just be kangaroos if we want to be, right? <laughs> and the reality is those are two polar opposites. And I feel like there's such an extreme between God's people and the world. And we shouldn't be surprised when people who don't know God act like they don't know God. Amen? 
But we're born again, new creations in Christ. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We have understanding of the truth, and we ought to be different in the world. And we should not hate anyone. We should love everyone, and we should point them all to Jesus. Amen? And then finally, biblical prophecy isn't meant to amaze you. It's meant to motivate you to be about your father's business. You know, again, as we see the signs of the times, as we see the that we're getting closer, that the clock is moving toward Jesus coming back. No man knows the day or the hour, and I'm not going to prophesy that. And you know what? Lord could wait 50 more years. He certainly could. It's his choice, not mine. But we know we're getting closer every day, and as we get closer, we ought to be motivated to be about his business. Amen? None of us has a promise of tomorrow. None of us has a promise of tomorrow. We need to live every day in light of eternity. So let's begin there looking at prophecy as preparation for what is coming, Greatness in the eyes of the world will be meaningless on judgment day. It says there, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. So you had that vision in chapter 7. This is two years later. This is during the reign of Belshazzar, which Babylonians are still in charge. We know that Belshazzar later on, about another 10 years from this, will be partying and getting drunk using the, you know, the things that were supposed to be used in the temple. And then God's going to, you know, the writing on the wall and he, and he drops dead that day as the Medo-Persians come in and overtake him. But this is still when Babylon is reigning. Daniel is in the court, you know, of, of, the, of one of the wise men. And this dream comes to him while Babylon is reigning. I keep saying that because Nobody has a clue about the Medo-Persians yet. Nobody has a clue that the Greeks are coming after that. Nobody has a clue about the Romans. But we're going to see that God's going to reveal all of this to Daniel for a third time. Chapter 2, chapter 7. He revealed chapter 2 to Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 7. He reveals it to Daniel. And now he gives Daniel, two years later, even another uh, dream that will help him to understand what's going to take place in the future so it can be shared in God's word and shared with us. Notice verse 2, I saw in the vision, and so it happened, while I was looking, I was at Shushan the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Now Susa, what's interesting about this, at this moment, it was not a big deal, this city. It was a smaller city, uh, it was known as the capital of the Elamites, and they had ruled there for over a thousand years before Daniel's day. In Daniel's day, it had become part of the Babylonian Empire, and Belshazzar's dad would flee from Susa as Cyrus came, Cyrus the Great, and began to conquer it. Now, what's interesting, after the Persians conquer it, the Medo-Persians, Darius the Great would build a great palace there, and it's that palace next to a Persian king, Azarus, uh, would host a great feast in the book of Esther. Now, what's interesting, this city is just a city. And because he is going to see what's going to happen in the future, and because he's going to be prophesying about what's going to happen with Persia, the Medo-Persians, it's interesting that God gives him the vision that he's standing in this city by this lake. And again, when you get to Esther and even Nehemiah, you're going to see that the city has become great. It's become a center of the Persians. And so God's giving him a vision of a city that is of no value at the time he's having the dream, but it's going to be something that God is going to use mightily. Susa was, 
would be one of the capitals of the Persian Empire, and it's appropriate that Daniel finds himself there. In Esther 2, it says this, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. So I just love how God is a God of details, and we, when we look at stuff like that, so if you just read that, if you were just Daniel, you'd think, why am I, why am I in Baltimore? There's nothing here, right? You know, why am I in this city out in the middle of nowhere, not knowing the greatness that was coming to it and how mightily it was going to rise up? And God is the one who brought him there. So in the vision, Daniel is standing by a river of an insignificant Persian city that will later become one of the capital cities, again, of the Persian Empire. Verse 3, then I lifted up my eyes and saw there standing beside the river was a ram who had two horns and two horns were high. The two horns were high but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So we know, it's interesting that in chapter 2, the, the second is arms of silver. Remember, it was a metallic structure, right? A metallic idol, if you will. The head was gold, the arms were silver, and there were two arms, obviously. And we know from Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the head was Babylon, and the arms were the Medo-Persians. Last week, and looking at Ferocious Beast. Babylon was a lion, and the bear was a picture of the Medo-Persians. And it talks about the fact that it was tilted on one side, because one side of the Medo-Persians was greater than the other. Now we've got the horns, and the horns are sticking up. One's higher than the other, because the Persians were going to be greater than the Medes. Now keep in mind, all of this is being prophesied before any of this happens. And it's, and it's this detailed, it's in three separate prophecies. Now what's interesting that it's a ram... And in the, in, they've discovered ancient coins from Persia, and on their coins is a ram. And their kings would wear headdresses when they went into battle, and the headdress was a headdress of a ram. So here he is having this visual of things that haven't taken place yet, and we see archaeologically, we see prophetically that a ram is something that would be identified with the Medo Persians. And again, one was higher than the other, like Daniel's vision, and it's a prediction that the Persians would be greater than the Medes, verse 4. Then it says, I saw a ram pushing westward and southward and uh, south, northward and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. So the Medo-Persians are not only going to overthrow Babylon. Now, keep in mind, when Daniel came to Babylon, they were taken captive out of Jerusalem, out of Israel. And when they were taken captive, the Bible tells us that Daniel was shown that it was going to be 70 years they were going to be in captivity. So the 70 years is getting close to an end, but nobody has any idea who's coming next, except for God. And God knew that Babylon, though it had been the greatest nation in the world, for over 70 years, was now going to come to a screeching halt. And Babylon had been full of themselves. We know that Belshazzar, when the Medo-Persians were surrounding you know, the, the, the capital, right? what did he do? He thought that the walls were so great, he thought his army was so great that he just had a party. He was having a rager while the enemy was attacking. And we saw that God brought that man to the end of himself, and what they literally did is they blocked up the waterway that fed water into the city. They walked right into the city and destroyed them. Now again, we can get full of ourselves. We can think like Babylon, like we've arrived. We can think as the United States that we're invincible. We seem to have a president that's trying to make us as little invincible as possible. I don't get political a lot, but dude, wake that dude up. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. 
No matter who's on, in the White House, God's on the throne. Can I get an amen to that? And God is in control, and God is in charge. We need to pray for our president. We need to pray for our governor. We need to pray for our governor. We need to pray for people that they so... We shouldn't be surprised when people who don't know God act like they don't know God. But again, if God is for us, you can be against us. And I believe the only reason our country still is blessed at all is because of the godly remnant that's still here. Amen? We hear all the time they want to kick all the Christians out. What we're going to find out in the tribulation, how that works out. Can I get amen to that? So praise God that we're here. Let's be salt and light while we're here. I love our country, but again, I love Jesus way more. And, and like Babylon, we can fall into the same trap. And so the Medo-Persians started eastward. They, they, they battled the Scythians, the Greeks, the Egyptians. They became the mighty nation. So Babylon went from being the greatest of the nations to the Medo-Persians. But guess what? Just like every other nation, it's going to fall. Every other nation that rises up. You know, the Romans, it was a thousand years. That's insane, isn't it? The Roman Empire ruled and reigned for a thousand years. And you know what? Even Rome came to an end. And the same will be true of all nations. Again, especially those who do not put their faith in the true and living God. Now watch what happens. Verse 5. As I was considering, suddenly a male goat came out from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had notable horn between its eyes. Now, if you put a ram and a goat in here to fight, who's winning? Ram's tearing a goat up. Amen? If a goat was in here, I would shoo it out. If a ram was in here, I would go hide. Amen? You ever seen a ram run at somebody? Run right through you. But the reality is, guess what? Even though these are two symbols, we're going to see the goats tearing up the ram. And and this, this goat, we're going to find out in Daniel's vision, this powerful ram was interrupted by a powerful goat, and the goat's a representation of the Greek empire. We'll see that in the interpretation that Gabriel gives later on in the text. And it's the chest of bronze in Daniel 2. It's the four-winged leper in chapter 4. And in all the cases, it talks about how quickly it moves. Now, as the Greeks take over, there's somebody who's well-known in history that is leading the Greek army, and his name is Alexander the what? It's not Alexander the mediocre. It's not Alexander the humble. It's Alexander and aren't I great mentality. Now, we know this about Alexander. You know that by the time he's 33 years old, he conquers the known world, and he ends up drinking himself into a deep depression and dies at the age of 33 because there was nothing else to conquer. See, your flesh will never be satisfied. See, Alexander was literally the most feared and uh, the most uh, powerful man in the world. And that wasn't enough. Because guys, your flesh will never be satisfied. And there's no position, there's no promotion, there's no amount of money, there's no house big enough, there's no car fast enough, there's no you know, relation good enough that's going to take away your need for a relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen? And there's an emptiness, and you'll never reach it. And this is where Alexander the Great came. But we're going to see that he moved quickly. His army was only 35,000 people, but he moved so quickly, he would just come in and wipe out nation after nation after nation till he had conquered the entire known world. Again, it's a picture of a, in other places of animals with great speed. And here in verse 5, it says it moves quickly. Uh, what's interesting is... The, the, one of the things, names they used for the Greeks were the Aegeans, because they were on the Aegean Sea. Well, the word Aegean means goat. So it's goat sea, right? 
But the reality is like Conejo Valley, it's Rabbit Valley, right? We live in Rabbit Valley. Really fierce. Look out for the rabbits. But here's the thing. The Aegean Sea, but isn't that interesting that here we see it in the Bible, and again, it's foretelling this is not going to happen for a couple hundred years. So a couple hundred years before Alexander the Great is going to be out conquering, Daniel sees this in a dream in detail. What's going to happen? The Medo-Persians are going to be like the Babylonians. We're strong. No one can mess with us. And all of a sudden, this young man in his late 20s is going to come in with this army and just wipe them out. And we see it in the Word of God about 200 years before it happens. Look at verse 6. Verse, uh, verse six. Then he came to the ram and had two horns, and I had one standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him. He attacked the ram. He broke his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. See how powerful that the Greek army would be, they're going to come through and just wipe them out. Now, I want you to know this, that even every battle that's ever been won is only won when it passes through the hand of Almighty God. Nobody wins because they overpower God's plan or God's sovereignty. God is in control, and God knows what he's doing. And here we see this picture, and again, it's been foretold so many years earlier. You know, again, they went across the whole earth without touching the ground. They're just going from city to city. And this is a prophetic description that clearly defined the Greeks. They rose up from the east. The Greek, uh, again, they had great speed. They had a notable ruler. Notice it said in, the, in that previous verse, it had a notable horn. So they had a notable ruler that was leading the way. And the Greek empire and Medo-Persian greatly hated each other with furious power. He moved in with rage. Some of the greatest, fiercest battles of ancient history were fought between the Greeks and the Persians, and the Greeks are going to win. And it's in the Bible 200 years before it happened. Guys, this is why we, we believe the Word of God, for so many reasons why we believe the Word of God. 66 books, 40 authors, three continents, three languages, 1,500 years, one central theme, no contradictions. How is that possible? Because God wrote the book. Amen? No one could deliver the ram from his hand. No one could rescue him. A ram gets tore up by a goat. That doesn't happen every day. But God's hand is upon him. Now notice what happens, though, at the end here in verse 8. It says, Therefore the male goat grew, and very great. And, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Now we know this from both chapter 2 and chapter 7, that in each case, this one great leader would turn into four leaders. Well, guess what? Alexander the Great, broken, comes to the end of himself, drunken depression, ends up dead at 33, and the kingdom is divided into four governors. And these four governors now create four different nations, in a sense, out of the one great Greek nation. And again, it's in the Bible hundreds of years before it ever happens. Here's five amazing prophecies. Let me go through these quickly that are made in this passage that were fulfilled in history down to the smallest detail. First of all, the goat represents Greece, a large horn, its first king, Alexander the Great, 
The goat began to expand its kingdom to cover the whole earth and move so rapidly that its feet didn't appear to touch the ground. It set world records for bringing the known world under its authority. History tells us that Greece built a kingdom like no other before it. In just 12 years, it conquered the entire civilized world without losing a single battle. Think about that. Did not lose a single battle, all of it done. The notable horn, of course, is Alexander the Great. History tells us his mother taught him he was a descendant of Hercules and Achilles. Story is told that as a little boy, there was a horse that no one could ride, that he, that he was able to break that horse and rode it into every single battle that he fought from this day forward. This guy was a man of legend, right? His dad, Philip the Macedon, was a great military leader, and Alexander feared that his dad would take care of all the enemies, and he'd have nothing to do when he got older. So he started fighting when he was young. Number three, the defeat of the Medo-Persians. Alexander came from the west and destroyed the Medo-Persians again with just 35,000 troops. Then it talks about in chapter, uh, verse, the final verse there in verse eight, the death of the king. At the peak of his strength, at only 33 years of age, he died of his own drunkenness, depression, because there were no more lands to conquer. And the details are so clear, 200 years prior to it happening, a story was told that when Alexander was on his way to Jerusalem to conquer the city, the one of the Jewish priests gave him a copy of Daniel and said, bro, you need to look at this because you're in here. And Alexander read it, and the word says that he he fell down and worshiped for a moment, but sadly, it didn't stick. He read it and so clearly recognized himself. Now, here's the good news. Alexander conquering the world is significant in the spreading of the gospel. How's that possible? Because he tried to bring the world under Greek culture and he established the Greek language to all he conquered. So the whole known world was learning Greek. What was the New Testament written in? prepared the way for scriptures to be written in Greek, prepared vast highways and roads throughout the kingdom, later used by missionaries to spread the word. See, God will even take what the enemy means for evil and use it for good. Amen? And God used even this man who was, had a bloodlust for ruling and reigning to bring about a greater opportunity for the gospel. The four horns replacing the great horn when Alexander died and his kingdom was divided into four generals. The four generals, one was Cassander, who ruled over Greece, then one named Lycomus, who ruled over Asia Minor, Seleucus reigned over Syria and Israel, and Ptolemy ruled over Egypt. So the male grew, uh, goat grew very great. The greatness of Alexander was not only in his vast dominion and power, but also was one to be able to spread the, their, the Greek um, culture. As God guided history, he used Alexander's passion to spread Greek culture, to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. So guys, even the things that we go through, here's what I want you to know. God's not only sovereign over nations, he's sovereign over us as individuals, amen? And so when we see the conquering of the Medo-Persians and the Greek culture being instilled, we could not possibly understand how God would use that to spread the gospel, but he knows what he's doing. And sometimes we go through trials and difficulties that we don't understand. And it doesn't make sense to us why certain things are happening and they're not happening or they're not happening quick enough. And we want to question and doubt God. I want to encourage you. God knows what he's doing and he's smarter than all of us. And he loves you more than you'll ever understand. And he is going to do what's best for you if you will but allow him. Amen. So trust him, trust his sovereignty, even when things look bleak, even when things are difficult, even when you're in the midst of great trials, our God is still 
in control. Amen? So number one, greatness in the eyes of the world was mean, will be meaningless on Judgment Day. Greatness in the eyes of the world meant nothing to Alexander the Great. Alexander the mediocre. Alexander the not so great. Alexander the drunk who died because he strived for the things of the world and did not realize that his flesh could never be satisfied because the only satisfaction comes from a relationship with the God who created you. Amen? Point number two, there is and always will be hatred for God's people. Look at verse 9. Out of one of them, speaking of the, came a little horn out of one of the four governments, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. The glorious land there is Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts, some of the stars of the ground, and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him daily sacrifices were taken away, and in the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Now, we're going to be introduced to this little horn. Now, the little horn we know from previous chapters ultimately will point to the Antichrist. And the Antichrist must come from the old Roman Empire, from one of these four nations that will be broken off. And, 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 and in, that Roman, in that old Roman Empire that it encompassed, so a, an American cannot be the Antichrist. He must have been born there. Why do we know? Because it tells us right here. This is one of many places. Now, there's going to be a soon fulfillment of this prophecy that's going to take place with a man by the name of Antichus Epiphanes. And he's going to be a picture of the distant fulfillment in the Antichrist. And we see this in Scripture. A lot of times the ones that are closer at hand are pictures of them, but the ultimate fulfillment is in the future event. Now, here's some, here's some spirit of Antichrist, and I have no problem saying Hitler. Was Hitler not a spirit of Antichrist? What's the answer? What did he want to do more than anything? Rule the world and wipe out the Jews. Does that sound familiar? And that's exactly what he wanted to do. You can say King Herod. King Her what did King Herod want to do with all the Jewish babies when he knew, heard that the king of the Jews had been born? What do you want to do? Wipe them all out. Right? We can go down the list of all these people that are types of Antichrist, but they're not the Antichrist. There's one who's coming who these fulfillments are going to be fulfilled in to the, to the nth degree. And so these things we're reading here, we'll see a picture of it in Antichrist Epiphanes, but the ultimate fulfillment will be in the Antichrist. So the glorious land at the time was the center of the world. In Hebrew, the same term that's used for Israel it was the nerve center of civil... You know, think about Israel. Again, it was the civilization, the center of civilization since Abraham has been. It's the truth center where God's revelation to man came from. It's the storm center where warring nations since the days of Joshua come together to battle. It's a peace center on the earth during the millennial reign of Jesus, and it will be home, the home center for Jewish people forever and ever, because the Bible says so. Amen. Israel is not encamping, they're not committing genocide, people committing genocide against Israel, amen? And they're not infringing on anybody else's land, they've owned that land, and God gave them that land when they entered into Canaan, amen? This land belongs to Israel and the people that are coming against it, so let me just make this really clear, these Palestinian protests are the spirit of Antichrist. A few people just went, Pastor Dave cool your jets. Here's the reality. 
They're walking, Ali Akbar, from the, you know, from the river to the sea. Let them all die. And people are saying, well, they're not like Hamas. They voted Hamas into power. They're standing by what Hamas did. Hamas is demonic. It's, and by the way, let's just call it what it is. It's Islam. Amen? Man, I invite somebody to church, and Pastor Dave goes off a rail. Here's the reality, though. We're in this chapter not by chance today. And it's happening all around us, and we should not stick our head in the sand and act like it's not happening. Amen? And so we need to pray for the, quote, Palestine. We need to pray for Islam. We need to pray for the Muslims. We need to pray for anybody who doesn't know the Lord and love them all. Amen? But that's, at the same time, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it, and we need to see that this is fulfillment of Scripture. Amen? So it says here, this little horn is going to be raised up. He even exalted himself above the prince of hosts. Who's that? He exalts himself against Almighty God. Antigus Epiphany is going to move toward the south and the east and the west. He did. It already happened. It was in Daniel's future. He murdered other rulers. He persecuted the people of Israel. He cast down some, where it says cast down some of the hosts. He's going to murder the people of Israel. He's going to blaspheme God and command idolatrous worship directed towards himself. There's nothing new under the sun. Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. And he's going to do the same thing. He's going, to, he's going to wipe out, try to wipe out all of the Jews off the earth. He's going to kill as many of them as he can. And at the same time, he's going to replace uh, the worship of the true and living God in the temple with a worship to Zeus and Bacchus, these false gods that he worshiped, and command that people worship them. And when they don't, it's going to cost them their lives. Guys, that's just like what's going to happen during the Great Tribulation. Amen? You either happened with Nebuchadnezzar. Bow, we're going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And we're living in a world today and even in our own country where they want us to bow to the government above Jesus Christ. And we are never going to do that. Amen? Now, Romans 13 tells us to submit to the authority God's placed over us. Pay your taxes. Obey the laws. Honor God. But if they tell us that we cannot worship God or if they try to keep us from having church or they do anything like that, choose today whom you will serve. We're going to serve God over man. Amen? And so, guys, we need to open our eyes. Now, what, this prophecy is not just to get us all whipped up. What it's supposed to do is give us a sense of urgency that we need to tell people about Jesus. And guys, just like the Word of God said, this is 2,700 years ago. Here it is being fulfilled even today with the things that are going on around us, and that ought to stir us up to tell people about Jesus. Amen? He cast down the truth to the ground. He opposed God and seem to prosper. And you know, it can be frustrating sometimes when people are opposing God and they seem to be doing okay. Just remember that the scorecard isn't kept here. It's kept there. Amen? And too often we think, why would somebody so evil seem to be doing so well? It's just for a little while. And we want to witness to them while we still can. We don't glory in the death of the wicked. We want to see them saved. After trying to conquer the world and being stopped uh, and, and we know he's going to die of a disease, Antichrist Epiphanes, but he gets angry and turns his wrath towards Jerusalem. And in so doing, look at verse 12, because of the transgressions, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground, and he did all this as he prospered. What did he do? He went after he, he's going to go in and, and, and it's going to be like the abomination of desolation where he's going to go in and he's going to sacrifice a pig. And he's going to overthrow and have people worship the true and living God. And he's going to 
put stop all the uh, sacrifices. He's going to shut down the temple, shut down the sacrifices. Don't worship your God anymore. Worship my gods, my idols, and worship me. Doesn't that sound like the Antichrist? And it is. It's a picture of the Antichrist. In so doing, in his wrath, when he became angered, he turned, and history tells us he killed over 100,000 Jews and enslaved about 40,000 of them. Why does it always seem to be the Jewish people? They've been persecuted more than every other people who have ever been persecuted in the history of the world. Amen? And the persecution continues today. It's taking place as we speak. Amen? By the way, we would have been leaving for Israel here in about a week. And I, if they would let me go, I'd go today. But that's just me. Now, he forbids Sabbath worship, the reading of Scripture. He forgot... He began to burn every uh, Old Testament that he could find, every you know, law and the prophets that he could find. He was burning them. He didn't want to repeat. Now, we, we haven't burned them here yet, but what's happening is we take it out of school, take it out of the library, take it out of you know, the, the city square. You can't, you know, there's people that are told they can't have a Bible on their desk at work. You know, and so what are they doing? They're trying to remove the word of God, take down the Ten Commandments. Hey, those crosses on the hill, they offend me. Take down those crosses. Guys, they will never quiet the word of God because even if they take the word of God out of the room, they can't take us out of the room. And we should be the people that are proclaiming the truth of the word of God without compromise. Amen? Don't keep it to yourself. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Let's be about it for the kingdom of God. Let's, let me tell you a couple of stories about this guy before we move on. The Jews were forbidden to practice circumcision because of Antichus Epiphanes. And history records mothers who, because of their deep commitment, circumcised their boys anyway. Antichus heard about it. He killed their babies, hung them around their mother's necks, marched them through Jerusalem to its highest wall, and threw them off. Antichus Epiphanes. This guy's the devil. Another circumcised her seven sons, and they cut out their tongues in front of their mother then fried them to death one at a time in front of their mother and then killed her. That's Antichus Epiphany. See, people think, oh, the Antichrist, he's just misunderstood. No, he's evil. He's evil. It's evil. It's wrong. Abortion is evil. It's not a choice. It's evil. It's a murder of an innocent baby. Amen? It's wrong. And it's painful for the, for the baby. It's wrong. And we live in a time that we get desensitized as Christians, don't we? We started to get desensitized, and you know, I, you, got, you guys are getting this for an hour. I got this for a week, and now you know why I'm a little fired up about this stuff, right? Because it's stirring up my heart. The Jews hated him and changed his name from Antichus Epiphanes. By the way, Antichus Epiphanes means Antinus the God. Follow yourself a bit. Well, he was Alexander the Great. Well, we defeated him, so I'm Antichus the God, right? Well, they changed his name and the way they talked about him is Antichus Ipomis, which means the madman. And it's interesting why they called him a madman. Antichus suppressed the suppression of the Jews came to a head in December of 168 BC when he returned from the defeat of Alexandria. He ordered his generals to seize Jerusalem on the Sabbath, and there he set up the idol Zeus and desecrated the altar by offering a swine and sprinkling pig's juices on the sanctuary, and then forced everybody to worship this idol 
Zeus, and also himself. You know, clean animals are a picture of Christ. These are uh, unclean animals desecrated the temple. Verses 13 and 14, and it says there, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices, the transgressions of desolation, giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? Now, people say, oh, prophecy in the Bible is not specific. Yes, they are. Look at this one. It says, he said, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. It's a little under seven years. So what's going to take place is when this happens. Now, remember, he's talking about Antigus Epiphanes, and he's talking about after the Greek empire, he's talking about an empire that's not going to take place for hundreds of years and he's giving these specific details of all the things will take place. And when we look back in history, this is exactly what happened. And the 2,300 days was the amount of time between when he had a, a foreshadowing of the abomination of desolation, of desolating the temple until it was cleansed and being used again for sacrifices. Guys, the Bible rocks. The Bible is true. Get a history book, open it up, and read your Bible, and you'll see that the Bible is true. Amen? It was out of this persecution that came the Feast of Dedication. Do you know that people love to look at prophecy and then what they'll do, there was a guy by the name, um, where's his name here? A guy named William Miller who used the 2300 days to calculate when Jesus would return. This has nothing to do with that. Do you read that in that text and go, oh, let's calculate those days. I'm sure that counts to when Jesus is coming back. But what they did is they find 2,300 days in a book of prophecy, and the Bible talks about when, the, the, when it goes forth to the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which is in Nehemiah, until the coming of the Son of Man. He made those 2,300 days, 2,300 years, and then they said that Jesus was going to return in 1844. That didn't happen. Amen. By the way, anybody starts giving dates, run. But you know what's interesting? There were two main denominations, a denomination and a cult that came out of this. The Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses, who all believed that Jesus was going to come back in 1844, and now they call that, they have a name for it, the Great Disappointment, because he didn't come when they thought he was going to come. But here's the sad part. The sad part is that People will take a text out of context, and they try to pick a day, and they try to be the ones that know, and then it didn't really happen. But believe me, I love when the, when the joke, they don't come to my house anymore, but when they used to come to my house, I'd say, you know, um, how many times you got to be wrong to be a false prophet? And they don't even want to answer that. I said, well, according to you, Jesus come back 1844, 1879, 1914, 1917, 1940. You've been wrong so many times, I can't even count. And by the way, you've got a printer out in Brooklyn that you think usurps the word of God and you deny the deity of Jesus Christ. So you're a false prophet, you need to get saved. And we love you guys, but you need to get saved. Amen? Guys, we, we're not, we're, again, we love Jehovah. Can I get amen to that? But guess what? You can't get to Jehovah without Yahweh. Amen? Yahweh is the way to the Father. Amen? So, we notice here that it's interesting that 2,300 days is literally the length of Antichus's reign. And when he comes to an end, it's cleansed. You know what's interesting? Each time the Jews were attacked, many of the times where Jews were attacked, when they were attacked, something came from it. A feast came from it. It was because of Pharaoh and the captivity they were in 
and Pharaoh's persecution that we have Passover. Amen? It's because of Haman. You remember Haman? Who's Haman? We're going to see him in a little, on, on Thursday nights pretty soon. Who did, who did he go out? He went after the Jews. And who was queen at the time? Queen Esther. Because of that, there's a, a, a feast called Purim, Feast of Purity. And then Antiochus, because of him, there's now the, what the feast that we call the Feast of Dedications that's also known as Hanukkah. So through persecution and through trials of life, God brings about something to bring remembrance to God's faithfulness in the midst of it. Amen? So the sanctuary will be cleansed. The Judas, Maccabe, Judas Maccabees, this is historical, cleansed the temple, and the sacrifices were resumed just as the calendar that was given to us. Wow, I am way behind. I'm not going to finish. I had no idea. You all did already. You're like, he's going way over. Cancel the lunch reservations. I guess I need to stop right there. So you're going to have to come back next week to see that things, have, as bad as things have been, greater persecution's coming. Oh, I'm going to write that down. I want to come for that. <laughs> the Antichrist will, will oppose God and his people in every way, and Bible prophecy isn't meant just to amaze us. You know, I, my heart for all of us is that when we that we not be afraid of prophecy, but we also not be just focused on, I have people that will call me and go, well, our church, we just been, we, we teach on prophecy every week. We've been doing it for five years. I'm like, really? You know, there's 66 books for a reason. Can I get amen to that? We want to teach the whole counsel of God. And, and we, but at the same time, when we see prophecy, we want to apply it to our lives and go out and live our lives different because we know what's coming. Guys, we know what's coming. And no matter what happens in the world around us, as we said last week, in the end, God wins. Amen? Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. We ask now as we go to this time of communion that, Lord, we can remember the greatest act of love in all of human history, that we can set our eyes back to the cross of Calvary. Lord, we do this in remembrance of you. As Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, Lord, heavy chapter today, a lot going on in the world around us, but we know that you're on the throne, that you're in control, and because, you because your son died on the cross for us, we we've been forgiven, we've been redeemed, we're going to heaven, but Lord, we want don't want to keep that to ourselves, but Lord, as we go this time of communion, may we take some time to look within and examine our own hearts before you. Take some time to also look back to the cross of Calvary and remember what you have done for us. And to look forward knowing that there's a day coming when we'll have communion with you in heaven. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We long for that day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. They're going to pass out the elements. And when they do, just hold on to those. Take a few moments and examine your own heart before the Lord. Look back, remembering the cross of Calvary, the greatest act of love in all of human history. And I'll come up in a few minutes and we'll take the elements together. Amen.